When you think around the world about AI thought leaders, you go all through the US and then you go through Europe and then eventually you get back to Australia and you go to your hometown in Perth, Western Australia. In this episode, I'm talking to Ellen Broad, who happens to be from my hometown in Perth. In this particular episode, we're going to do our best not to talk about Perth, but to talk about AI and how Volvos have trouble recognizing kangaroos. This is the Tech Seeking Human podcast brought to you by Dynatrace. Hi everyone, welcome to the Technology Seeking Human podcast where we go and demystify technology and talk to experts all around the world and help simplify what is going on in this software evolution. I'm joined by Claire Palmer here, my co-host. How are you, Claire? I'm good, Dave. How are you? Are you excited about the conversation today? Absolutely. Let's get Ellen Broad on. Ellen, how are you? I'm very well, thank you. Two fascinating things about you. One is you are nearly due to have a second baby, even though no one would know by looking at you. (laughs) Could happen at any moment, 39 weeks, so could happen during this podcast. Can you give us some sort of sign if it does um, so we (laughs) don't freak too much? I think I would be, it would be difficult to avoid giving you a sign, to be honest. I mean, that would be great if there was no sign. That's Ellen Braun gives birth to baby during a, a technology-seeking human <laughs> podcast using artificial intelligence because it's magic, correct? Mm-hmm. Which mm-hmm. is what we're going to talk about today is the magic of AI or not the magic of AI. Maybe it's not all it's cut out to be. And the other piece that I have to mention, because I know you're outnumbered as part of this, is we're both from Perth, Western Australia. We are. And it's going to be very difficult not to make this about Perth. <laughs> it's very, very, because that's what Perth people do. Mm-hmm. <laughs> And we've already started doing it, so we should stop. Just a little club, aren't you? We are a little club. (laughs) We are a little club. Let's get into the podcast. I want to dive into AI. I want to know all about why it's fundamentally flawed at the moment or why we should be paying more attention to the biases that come through AI. I read your book as well, which I think everyone should read. You actually changed my mind on a number of topics. Ellen, you've got to finish this sentence. AI will... Help us understand ourselves better. How so? Because the more that we're learning about AI now, the more that we're learning that it reflects our own assumptions and practices, that it comes from particular contexts and places. So you're forced to reckon with your own culture, your own practices, your own history in figuring out why your system is working the way it is. So I actually, that is something that makes me relatively optimistic about the journey we're on with AIs. It is a mirror back on ourselves. And you, we're kind of getting to a point where you can no longer pretend that's not what it is. We can't just continue to talk about machines as though they come out of nowhere and are manufactured separate from the humans that created them. But that's the thing, isn't it? Because most people do think that the AI is magical. They don't, they don't delve into the system. They don't probably understand that it's potentially biased. That's part of your argument, right? I wonder quite often how much of a bubble I'm in because now I do podcasts like this. I am in lots of contexts where this is all that we talk about. So I've just assumed that the general consciousness is also moving in this direction, that we, you know, 
public sentiment on any topic changes over time as we become more familiar with technologies that surround us. And I do think there is still an expectation in a number of areas of the general public that AI is just going to make things simpler, easier, more efficient. But I also think we get these little glitches around us all the time in our day-to-day lives, you know, Google Maps sending you down the wrong street or Amazon giving you advertisements for things that you purchased two weeks ago or Netflix's recommendations getting duller over time that are giving people these cues that, you know what, maybe this isn't as intelligent or as superhuman as we thought it was. So I feel like there's a pragmatism creeping in. You know when you go to, you finally decide, I don't know, I'm going to go buy this particular car. Mm-hmm. And then you go driving along the street and you go, oh my God, this car is everywhere. I've seen it everywhere. Do you think there's an element of maybe it's even your own bias or our own bias because we're having this discussion that we now think that the entire population is moving in that direction? Or is it really still the public is just completely oblivious to the results that search engines are giving us, the Googles, the Alexas, the Facebooks, the advertising and these sort of things, the results that they give us is actually magical to these people. I, maybe I'm too much of an optimist, but I actually think it is changing because even if you look at the indicators of change, which is not like, um, I remember the first time about six or seven years ago, my dad was having a conversation with me about data privacy and that was the government's my health record um debacle and everyone was talking about it and it was this moment where i was like wow a topic that until very recently literally only i and a number of technologists academics policymakers cared about is now just talked about at the fruit and veg shop And I think you can look at other signs that public awareness of AI is growing as well, like that you have Netflix documentaries about not just how amazing AI is, but all of the challenges. You know, people are, I've lost count of the number of people who say to me, oh, have you seen The Social Dilemma? Because it's on Netflix. We've got policymakers increasingly talking about it uh, who are not just your typical digital minister. Um, so I actually do think now, you know, uh, we always talk about the pub test or the pub conversation. Mm -hmm. I actually think now one of the things that I most frequently encounter, if I have a pub conversation about AI is someone going to, is going to tell me everything that they already know about how terrible it is and problematic it is. And now I have to do a little bit of winding back quite often, like, ah, it's a bit more complicated more complicated like people are forming opinions which is i think the first step to education yeah there's a so there's a pendulum shift because mm. originally it was like let's go and everyone let's go and stick alexas and googles into our house and have it listen and show cameras and now everyone's sort of a little bit like mm, is it shifting is the public are they sort of shifting now and going oh i've got to be a bit wary actually of what this ai is telling me and serving up I think we're still in the myth phase of AI. It's just our myths are shifting. So our myths are becoming more suspicious, more creepy. You know, five years ago, you probably remember the um, uh, the online tools you could plug your occupation into and it would tell you how quickly you'd be out of a job. It would be like, 
lawyers, you're all going to be out of a job by 2025. Uh, truck drivers, out of a job by 2020. Um, because five years ago, it was like, this is definitely going to happen. Mm-hmm. It is going to be better. It is going to replace everything. And I think we that myth is starting to recede. Now we're in the, this is creepy. It's going to be doing something nefarious myth which has its own challenges sometimes when you're trying to get people to do things that might actually help them. Um, you know, where people just now are so distrustful, yeah. they don't want anything to do with a technology solution. And we just need to almost get through the myths entirely to the point where we just talk about these systems as we do the light switches in our house Mm -hmm. or the mechanics in our cars. And you have just a much more mundane, pragmatic relationship with them. Yeah. And you mentioned with the AI that it's, it's sort of like the information you're putting into it, that they're not as smart as we probably think they are. Cause as the, the data flow that's going in is fundamentally flawed. It's not a true representation often of humans and the data that it's collecting therefore the results that it's serving up is biased it is totally context dependent because if you so ai as a term encompasses lots of different tools and techniques we talk about robots virtual reality machine learning all fitting under this umbrella and there's some kinds of applications that you could use huge quantities of data to train a model to interpret and it would be fine it would be uh, low risk, like you might be interested in predicting how water is going to flow off a landscape for flood modeling, for example. And so if your data is primarily about your landscape, historic water patterns, um, uh, 3D images of the soil and the types of soil that are there, there's not a lot of like risk or uncertainty in how it's going to predict water flow. And you might have missed some blind spots, but it's quite clear what you're trying to measure and and what the objective is. Where it becomes really hard and where we talk about issues like bias and representation is when we start to think we can use these techniques for problems that have always been really hard even for humans to do, like deciding who is the right fit for a job or who is most likely to go to prison where it's actually not as two-dimensional or as simple as like which way is water going to run when it rains a lot um so then these questions become really important because if you are going to determine if we think we can decide who's going to go to prison you can't think about that without thinking about the fact that certain kinds of people are already more likely to be stopped and searched, more likely to be arrested for petty misdemeanors, more likely to be convicted at trial, which are not AI questions. They're just human things that are in your data that are going to tell your computer what results are likely to occur. So like your issues of bias become most challenging, usually in the situations where we know we have human bias, like where we know our ability to solve these problems in the past has been hard because they're human problems. So if I can dumb it down, does Mm. it mean 
Um, because I'm from Perth and you've mentioned Perth three times and it's only 3-1, so I need to catch up. <laughs> um, so uh, if I dumb it down, it's like when humans have to make a judgment and it could sort of go either way, that's where an AI is going to struggle. It's going to struggle the way we struggle. And I think one of the challenges we've had is one of the myths has been that these decisions will be better. So if a computer spits out a result, we'll be like, well, it's got to be right. It didn't come from a human. It's going to be smarter. When quite often in these contexts where what we're really asking a computer to do is a judgment, like we're not, it can't um, prophecy the future. It's just having a crack, like we're having a crack and it could be right or it could be wrong. It's just that we don't go, it could be wrong. Yeah, so crunch a lot of information, a lot of the data points, come out with an answer, but humans should decide, they should review that data, they should understand where the data came from, what the variations could be, what the issues could be, and they could make a judgment as a result. Sort of yeah, what you're saying? Exactly. Because so we look at, for example, diagnosing medical conditions using AI. You might have a um, an AI that's going to look at chest x-rays and tell you if someone has pneumonia. Um, there's actually a fantastic academic in Adelaide, uh, Dr. Luke Oakden Rayner, who's kind of one of the leaders because he's both a trained radiologist and a machine learning researcher. So he can kind of see how they fit together. But he's pointed out that, you know, we can teach, we can train models to identify certain patterns on chest x-rays, but they will also make mistakes that no human radiologist will make. Because for example, if you have a drain in your image of the chest, it might learn to associate that drain with a condition that a radiologist would look at that image and go, oh no, there's a chest drain there. That's not a sign of needing treatment. That's a sign that something's already been treated. So you'll always need the trained radiologist to review the kinds of identifications or diagnoses being made because one of the things that we do know about a number of systems is when they make mistakes they can make mistakes that literally no human would make because we still have a much better understanding of context the classic one in melbourne was you know the driverless car that slammed on its brakes when a swan and its signets was crossing the road like hardcore stop and would not move for quite a long period of time because it was like, I don't know what this is. I don't know how to move forward, which is itself a hazard. Um, there's been stories about driverless cars failing to recognize kangaroos because if you've been trained on North American animals and suddenly there's a giant, <laughs> but I for hum that. for humans, we wouldn't like, even if you've never seen a kangaroo before, you would know it's big. I've got to stop in a particular way. I've got to stop a particular distance away. Or if it's a tiny bird, you'd be like, it's too dangerous to stop. Yeah. I'm just going to run it over. Do you see that evolving though? Like, do you see that that will improve? Good question. Because the, you said in your book, 2017, Volvo was forced to admit that its self-driving car wasn't very good at detecting kangaroos in Australia. So to Claire's point, which is a good question, if they do now know that there are kangaroos <laughs> and where they're going to come from whilst driving, which is very, very dangerous and very fast, um, can these permutations, can the system eventually learn mm. 
at, to the point where it's getting more human. Like, will it evolve? Because we're still infant. We're so young when it comes to really evolving the AI. That's definitely the hope is because the problem has always been edge cases. Is like, how do you train a computer that does not think like a human? I know we quite often talk about computers in terms of humans, but if you've ever been around small children or you've observed your own learning practices, we intuit, we anticipate, we are comfortable with completely new things around us and can still navigate our way through. Whereas computers need to be taught. So even our kind of most sophisticated models right now need us to give them lots of data to learn to navigate a setting. So we can give them lots of images of kangaroos and hopefully, you know, I assume now Volvo is like, it'll be fine in Australia if it encounters a kangaroo. But what if it encounters, for example, this just happened to me at my local shopping center, someone in high vis with hand signals moving people from lane to lane Mm. uh, while a giant cement track bucket backs out where all you can see is a person just making these small hand signals and we're all like letting each other in and crossing lanes and that's just a that's the kind of event that is very hard to predict for Mm. but happens in our day-to-day lives where humans like okay I'll just figure it out I'll get through it so it's the edge cases that are always difficult I do want to come back to something else you mentioned in your book because it AI is embedded in the software and life is now code. Everything we do is determined by software. And the thing that you touched on in the book, which I found very interesting and something that I've seen a lot of as well, particularly for what I do with my day job, which is software isn't perfect. It's not designed with standards in place, highly variable, contributed by lots of different teams and can cause fairly significant issues when rolled out into the public. Yes, there's a phrase that I think I quote in the book that I love and it's like the scariest thing about learning to code is realizing the internet is put together with peanut butter and goblins. Like that a lot of our infrastructure was really designed for something to work for a very short period of time and then is still being relied on 15, 20 years later. I know my, you know, Microsoft Word still has elements of its code base that they can't actually fix and it's like we've just got to build on top of it and keep going. Um, and I think that's one of the myths that as an industry, we've kind of set ourselves up for and now have shot ourselves in the foot because I know that one of the biggest challenges I have when I work on applied projects, you know, when we're being paid to develop a product or we're supposed to build some massive complex piece of infrastructure in say 12 months, is that because so much of what's made people think software is magic is that it's completely hidden Um, and things just pop up on your screen. Um, Now it is really hard to explain to people that there are different standards of quality, that what you're asking us to do will take longer than you think it does, that the project that you think will cost this much money, actually, if you really want it to do the thing you want it to do, it's going to cost you four times that. It's, It's just very hard now to have conversations with people outside of the software industry who aren't looking under the hood to go, 
um, this is actually really hard. So I think that's one of the things that is, is like it, it suited us. It was convenient to be wizards um, and have everyone like you snap your fingers and look at what's on your screen. But now there's massively oversold expectations on what our software products can deliver. And that's part of the challenge we're facing into. Yeah, and you gave a very, very good analogy in the book about a group of students, I think it was, that were told to design a bridge. Is that correct? And you, can you share that example? Because that, yes. for me, I went, oh, yeah. So this, I, I cannot claim credit for it. It's from a famous essay in 2014 called Programming Sucks. And he mm-hmm. was using the bridge metaphor to describe what it's like working on a software project. And the bridge metaphor is you've got one person who only wants to work with concrete because that's what they learned to construct with and they're going to build the bridge in concrete. Then you've got someone who wants to try out this entirely new form of material in construction that nobody else knows how to use yet, but they want to push the envelope. So they're going to use the bridge to experiment with something entirely new. You started off thinking you were having a suspension bridge, but actually it turns out nobody knows how to build a suspension bridge on the project. So halfway through, it's become a different kind of bridge altogether. And it kind of just talks about he kind of goes on like some people only want to use wood. Some people uh, haven't thought about the trucks that are going to go across it. It's such an individual practice. Mm -hmm. And that's still a problem that I have recruiting engineers, for example, is, you know, people will be like, I only code in Haskell Mm -hmm. and Haskell is the best language. We will not question it. Um, I haven't even heard of Haskell. (laughs) It's, functional programming so if you really like like math and cleanliness there is evangelists around it but it's like you know we we've developed such individual notions of what the role of engineering is that it's about like individuals getting to do and pursue particular practices that we haven't really um set it up as a job like a lot of other industries where you just have expectations and responsibilities and sometimes it's boring and sometimes you just have to do stuff yeah the challenge then becomes when software becomes everything and this is my doomsday hat you ready for this one i know you love where i go with this because i often talk about the world needing software to work perfectly because it's in our cars it's in the plane it's in everything as we become more dependent on it it can kill people and who's responsible for when it does? And people putting faith in the idea of like, I use the example of the 737 Max badly, but yeah. that's an example of software that's in a code that brought planes down because it potentially, or I don't know if this is legally true or not, mm-hmm. but they said they potentially rushed it. And you got people's lives online. It's funny. I, I actually don't think we need software to be perfect because mm-hmm. nothing is perfect. Like Correct. before software, we had planes falling out of the sky because of faulty um, side panels or faulty construction of windows. What we need is to feel that we've, like if you accept that some risk is always possible, like the perfection is not attainable, what you want to feel like is that whatever I'm getting into or on, or whatever context I'm encountering, it's been tested. 
for a bunch of things that they know exist Mm. and you know some safety steps have taken place and that if that bad thing happens someone is going to get held accountable for it the journey we're on with software is up until very very recently it actually wasn't the case that software was flying your plane or software was driving your vehicle for you that's last 25 years last 20 years so now we're starting to go okay like it can't just be the bridge construction you all get to do whatever you want we need ways of assuring ourselves that you've done this properly you've again you changed my mind because yeah the the variations are that yeah planes are probably a a lot safer than they have been and that has been a result of software testing and these sort of things and these are extreme cases like you make the case for i highlighted another part of the book and i'm going to read it to you and i want your opinion on it because i love how closely you've read the book uh well i was at my daughter's soccer training and um (laughs) so you know anyway um who says we wouldn't value going slower I stared at her. I've never even contemplated the idea. In a hundred years' time, maybe AI won't just be about going faster. Maybe as a society, we'll appreciate going slowly. It's funny. When I wrote that, we had not had massive bushfires or a global pandemic. And now the idea of going slower seems... I remember when I wrote that thinking like, wow, I've never thought about this before. Mm. Maybe relentless growth and scale is not just the tempo of life. And now I feel like actually we're having this conversation everywhere, not just about technology. We're talking about, well, we're going to have to revisit our obsession with plane travel. Because now that we've actually all been sitting still for 12 months, the possibility of a different approach to travel is um, more real. Um, So I do think in lots of industries and contexts, we're now starting to talk about, well, hang on, like, how do we be more sustainable? How is economic growth still, so how is GDP still our measure of economic growth when we have massive inequality alongside it. So we're starting to question, not even in a technology context, like these fundamental measures of growth on which perhaps our planning for the last 50, 100 years have been based. And I do think we're having conversations about slowness in a range of contexts. Just a couple of final ones because I know we, we got we got to wrap. Um, explainable AI, why is it really important for companies to explain how their algorithm works? So for us to start talking about things like safety, you need to be able to say something about what your program is supposed to do. You know, it's supposed to turn the nose of the plane up when it encounters this particular warning sign. So just from the point of view of um, standards, audibility, accountability, we want to understand things about how a system works. One of the conversations that's very much underway in explainable AI is, well, who is your explanation for? And I think as with, you know, we've talked about buildings and roads, usually who that information is for depends on the like 
audience or the profession. Like you could read the building code and go, I have no idea what any of that is saying. I'm going to get a building inspector to interpret Mm. it for me. So similarly under explainable AI, we're going to end up with a bunch of different versions of explainability for different contexts. I can't help but got to ask one more. (laughs) Third party, like, sorry, review sites. We're reviewing Mm -hmm. applications, businesses, brands, and my mum's able to leave a review and she knows nothing about how software works. Is this a good thing or a bad thing? It's so hard. Like I think about this, you know, we've made a decision that crowdsourced reviews are useful in some contexts. Like, you know, the last 25 years have seen just a growth in so I when I look at restaurants now, I'll go immediately to their rating on Google or TripAdvisor and be like, oh, 4.8 stars yeah. must be good. Yep. Not knowing anything about how that was generated. That's that's part of our infrastructure. Um it's just like it depends. If you're yeah. a business that gets a really awful, ill-advised review. One of the challenges that we're dealing with at the moment is like, well, how do they get it taken down? And there have been cases against Google, for example, for failing to take down erroneous reviews. We also have huge issues with review farms where you can just now pay people to write incredible reviews, amplifying your 4.8 star rating. And these are all possible bad reviews the good reviews the fake reviews the massive amounts of reviews because our platforms are predicated on scale and speed first so there's no quality assurance of reviews there's no it's you know anyone anywhere can write a review because we're all equal and it will be immediate in its appearance in the world we don't have to design our platforms that way we could go back to only Michelin starred reviewers that have certain credibility can comment on the suitability of restaurants or the suitability of software, whatever our Michelin software experts are. We know they had problems too. You know, people are snooty. Um, Mm. But I think the thing is like, there is no perfect solution. It's always a little bit of a gamble whether you're going to get a good meal. Yeah. And yeah, I think like, with the slowing down, with the pandemic, you're just you're questioning a lot more. So you like when I look at reviews, I've researched it a bit more than I used to. And I think because we're you have to remember like we're more sophisticated on these platforms. Mm. Like you've probably been in an Airbnb. We like wait, yeah. this had a four point nine star rating. How is there a like moldy banana just yeah. sitting on the bench top taunting me this whole time, <laughs> or like mushrooms growing in the shower? Um, <laughs> So we are in conversation with these platforms all the time. And as they become less reliable, like as you start to be like, that review seems inflated Mm. or that doesn't seem quite right. Like we adjust our behavior in response. So, you know, maybe in another 10 years time, the ratings will just no longer work. Like they'll no longer be what we use to decide where we stay or what we yeah. eat. We'll just have gone back to friends telling us that actually this was really good. The only restaurant in Perth to eat at is this one. There we go. So it's four, three now, but yes, to your point, the influence <laughs> of these social sites or these reviews may not be as heavily weighted as they are today. And if you, for anyone that's listening, read the book, 
and the was it called the shed in Dulwich? So the guy yeah. made up his own restaurant, oh. took photos <laughs> of the food himself, and then got it got the top restaurant in London on yeah. TripAdvisor maybe, and yeah. people were walking around Dulwich going, "Where's this secret <laughs> restaurant?" And it was all made up. And the scariest thing about that story, because he just gamed the algorithm. He submitted fake reviews. He got his friends to review it. He, he knew how TripAdvisor's scoring algorithm worked and he pushed it all the way to the top. So it was legitimately number one ranked. The scariest thing about that story for me was that there were people. So he opened the restaurant for one night and it served Iceland food. It served like frozen food. It's Icelandic food. It's cheap. Iceland it's the cheap supermarket, like yeah. frozen food supermarket. <laughs> it's like the, it's where you go for fish fingers. Got it. Um, and like they're clearly eating on plastic tables. It's clearly a shed. And people still at the end of the meal were like asking when they could come back because the what? aura of the five, like the aura of being in the top be in restaurant. The they want to be in the, yeah. Yeah. And it was so hard to get into, you know, like. Yeah, it's that. You could never get a booking because it was never open because it didn't exist. So that crazy. that to me is one of the real challenges with these rating systems is, yeah, I can just say like, we won't use them in 10 years time, but they do have clearly an effect on the way that we view the world. And there are people who like cannot believe what's in front of their eyes. They don't have their own opinion. Yes. That's, well, that's a whole other topic. Because they're going <laughs> off because everyone else thinks it's like peer pressure, but it's social peer pressure. Yeah, it's if you believe that a car or a system is going to behave in certain prop ways, even if there's evidence in front of your eyes that it's not going to do that, our confirmation bias is such that we can be misled. Like we can be told, you, we've watched The Chaser, we've watched Borat, we've watched yeah. all of these things that show yeah. us just how bad we are at making independent decisions and it's one of the challenges we have with AI. Lucky we've got smart people out there like you because most of us aren't the most intelligent beings. I am still as gullible as anybody else. In fact, I keep saying with book number two, I'll have to tell the story of how I got pregnant with Jean by accident because I started using digital a digital app that was allegedly predicting when I would be ovulating. Uh, and now there are court cases against these uh, apps because they were luring women into thinking oof. that, well, you know, what is being predicted about your body is actually what's happening in your body. And I study this for a living. And yet yeah. I used it for three months and got pregnant by accident because <laughs> I just had convinced myself that, oh, look, the oh, app says. That's good. I'm Imagine the app review. Story. You're going to give it totally zero did. stars. I'm having a baby because your app sucks. <laughs> I'm not going to mention it. But, you know, like we're all guilty yeah. of going, oh, this like, you know, in my case, it was like, I want to get, this felt weirdly more natural. You know, like you're not using hormones. You're not taking the pill. Yeah. It's like using data. <laughs> it's got to so- be right. <laughs> So you wrote the book on like make decisions, don't necessarily trust the AI, and now you're having a baby because of the AI. That was baby number one. I had the baby. Oh, that was the first one. Let me be clear. We've only made one mistake. We've only made one. I only made one mistake. I only had one child. 
We all got to be skeptics then. If you just go to the point earlier, nothing is perfect. Like there is always room for error. And if we just remember that, you can adjust your own risk accordingly. That would be my number one. Like if you at least accept that these systems are not superhuman or Mm. capable of seeing the future, then usually whatever the context, you'll adjust your likelihood of relying on them accordingly. The old saying of don't believe what you read in the paper. Don't believe what you see in the application. Just use it as a data point and use your brain to make your own assumption. Mm -hmm. Ellen, we could go on and on and on. Um, The book is absolutely fantastic. For anyone that's listening, highly encourage you to read the book. Made by humans to AI condition. Ellen, we're really excited about your next book. Thank you. Great to talk to you. Thanks for being on the podcast. Best of luck with your newborn. Thank you both. Thanks, Ellen. Bye.